Good morning, church family. Uh, My name is Brian Towell. I've been going to Windsor Road for almost four years now. In those years, I've served in multiple areas of the church and accepted Jesus into my life when I was baptized in the pool behind me a little over a year ago. I'm a recent graduate of the University of Illinois uh, with a degree in molecular biology and chemistry and will hopefully attend medical school or graduate school sometime next fall. I'm also someone who has struggled with the temptation of homosexuality. I want to define what this means for my life. When I say I struggle with homosexuality, I mean that I am romantically and physically attracted to men. As far as I can remember, I've never shared these feelings for a woman. My feelings are not passing desires, and they are not a simple curiosity at the back of my mind. This is a daily frustration that I experience, and for a long time I never understood why this temptation was a part of my life. To be honest, I was angry at God for guiding me down a path that involved developing a relationship with him while also having feelings that were contradictory to his beliefs. When I was asked to share my story today, uh, reflection on the past truly showed how the Lord has been involved in my life, and I'm beginning to see my relationship with him take place. I grew up in a strong family who to this day love and support me. I wasn't abused or neglected, and both parents played an active role in my life. It was clear growing up, though, what their feelings were on the subject of the gay agenda. Because of their remarks, my initial plan while I was at home was to simply wait. I would wait until I left the house, go to college, and it was then I would become the person who I thought I was meant to be. Although the statement is kind of true, who I thought I was meant to be in high school is a far different person than I am today, and this is because of Christ. When I came to the U of I, I lived in a Christian cooperative house for men. To be honest, I was terrified of living in a Christian house while having these feelings. And it was apparent living there through people's crude remarks and frustrating jokes what their thoughts were on homosexual people. When I lived with strong Christian men, although they were unaware of my struggle, my feelings were the butt of almost every joke. There was even a point where a house leader described someone in my position as a parasite in a feeding ground when I proposed the hypothetical of a gay man living in the house. That's what my struggle was, a virus. I didn't feel love for my suffering. I felt disgust and disregard for my pain. After living in the house for a year, I finally confessed my feelings for the very first time in my entire life to my older house brother. This is one of the most terrifying moments for me in my life. I wasn't afraid of his response. He was one of the most Christ-centered men I've ever, ever met in my life. But I was afraid of finally admitting the struggle to myself. I knew that after I fully confessed my feelings, I'd be forced to make a choice. I would have to decide to follow what I wanted and satisfy my own desires, or follow the Lord with my life and let him shape my path. That summer, I continued to confess my struggles, and God continued to place people on my path who not only treated me the same as before, but asked how they could love and support me even more. In a way, it strengthened our relationships. To this day, when I meet up with someone who I haven't spoken to in a while, one of the first concerns is my well-being with my struggle. But while God kept providing support through relationships, my feelings never changed. I asked him every day to change my heart in any way. I didn't even care if he took all desire of love away from me. I just didn't want to continue to desire other men. I felt like every day I was twisted, wrong, and overflowing with sin. I complained constantly how it wasn't fair and wondered why God would allow such frustration into someone's life. Through patience, prayer, time, and some very wise friends, I finally have a much firmer grasp on my anger and bitterness toward my struggle. My older house brother always told me how life isn't fair for anyone, 
and you never know what another pain someone might be going through. Over time, I have truly taken that to heart. These temptations haven't gone away, and neither has all my anger and bitterness. Sometimes I feel like I'm a huge pit of frustration. Choosing to follow the Lord with this struggle means that I may be alone and lacking a lifelong companion. Because of this loneliness, I sometimes worry that I may decide to leave the Lord and follow my own path. I'm terrified that I'll never feel love. And that's where the body of Christ has become so important in my life. I find comfort in friends who continue to keep my pain in their thoughts and check in from time to time. I find, uh, excuse me, most of all, I find power in simply the truth. I find strength in the fact that life isn't easy for anyone. Everyone in this world is broken and we don't deserve any of God's love and support, but he still provides it. My desires are no more sinful than any other person's struggle. Our choices are what define us, and for a long time, I defined myself as a young, angry man who wished the church would say it was okay for me to find love. But I did find love. God has called me into his family. And I have the greatest opportunity to accept that gift. Although I don't know what the future holds for my life, I can only hope my aim will always be to choose to follow the Lord. Whether or not this struggle is removed from my life, I will get up every day and choose to follow him. Thank you. Our scripture today is taken from Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. It's just one verse, but it is the verse that's going to guide our conversation today. It comes from the pen of the Apostle Paul. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. This is God's word. Our scripture reading today reminds us that there are two frameworks or two worldviews through which we interpret all of life. One of those frameworks is deceptive. The other is truthful. One of those frameworks is hollow, while the other is impenetrable. One is of earth, while the other is of heaven. One is built on the shifting sands of human opinion. The other is built on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. Two frameworks, two competing frameworks, two competing irreconcilable frameworks. One is from above, the other is from below. Now, it's extremely important at the outset of any discussion on the subject of homosexuality that you make yourself aware of the particular framework or worldview by which you choose to see this issue. As a reminder, a framework or a worldview is a a lens through which you see life. A worldview helps you make sense of what you see and experience. 
And make no mistake, there's no neutral lens or framework through which you see this subject. To say, well, I don't see this through any particular uh, framework or worldview. Well, that's nonsense. Of course you do. Everybody does. And what I want to do today is to talk about these two competing, irreconcilable frameworks. And I want us to see how these mindsets show up, especially regarding homosexuality. And I want to show you why one makes better sense than the other. And then I want to answer some questions that I've thought of regarding homosexuality. So let's begin with with a a comparison contrast of these two uh, competing frameworks. Let me begin with the first framework that I would like to call the gospel explanatory framework. The gospel explanatory framework. Uh, We can summarize this in four words. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. The gospel framework starts with Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Creation. In Genesis 1, over six workdays, we're given this majestic description of God's creative skills, light and darkness, and the sea and the sky, the fertile earth, the lights of the sun and moon and stars, the, the fish and the birds, how God created the land animals and how he made human life. And after each of those creative acts, the Bible says in Genesis 1, and God saw that it was good. In Genesis chapter 2, God says in verse 18, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And so he created woman. Now note, Adam was not given a mirror image. He was given a her. He delights in her correspondence to him. Now she is like him, that is she's human, and she's different from him. That is, she's female. And so Genesis chapter 2, 24 declares, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And as the pinnacle of creation, God set Adam and Eve as icons in creation. He commissioned them to rule and to be his representatives And God told them that they could enjoy the fruit from any tree of this garden except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he enjoyed fellowship with them in the cool of the day. Creation. In this splendid, sinless garden, there suddenly appears in Genesis chapter 3 this wily serpent whose first words to Adam and Eve questioned the word of their benevolent creator. Do you remember Satan's first spoken words? Did God really say? And Adam and Eve took the bait. And their rebellion against God in taking the forbidden fruit unleashed cataclysmic consequences for themselves, for creation, and for their relationship with God. Creation, fall. That which was blissful became broken. That which was ordered became chaotic. And the effects of this brokenness and fallenness have reached into every crevice of the universe. Our world is broken Our environment is broken, nations are broken, governments are broken, 
Relationships are broken. Human bodies are broken. And worse still, our relationship with God is broken. We've become separated from our creator and held captive in this kingdom of darkness. Creation, fall, redemption. You see, God so loved this world, this broken and rebellious world, this fallen world, that he sent his son into the world to redeem us, to seek and save the lost, to rescue us from this dominion of darkness through the death, burial, and resurrection of his one and only son, Jesus Christ. And by grace through faith, we are redeemed from the darkness and we are adopted as sons and daughters of the king. Through Christ, our primary identities are that as heirs in the family family of God. The gospel explanatory framework says, by grace through faith, God is my father, Christ is my brother, and I'm a son and daughter of the Lord. And in the deepest sense, I belong to him. He redefines and he redirects every part of my being. And one day, my adoption into his kingdom, my redemption will be brought into fullness when the king returns to remake the heavens and the earth in new, immortal, incorruptible, sinless bodies. We will reign with him in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the restoration and we will be with the Lord Jesus Christ forever. Creation, fall, Redemption, restoration. The gospel explanatory framework, it's a worldview. It's a narrative. It's a, it's a matrix, a lens through which we see all of life and church family. It is the framework by which we understand homosexuality. You see, in this gospel framework, homosexuality, that is erotic same-sex behavior, homosexuality is a product of the fall. And it's one of many sinful behaviors that fall outside God's will for sexual intimacy. The gospel framework asserts that that distorted sexual desires and distorted sexual deeds can be traced back to our spiritual ancestors, Adam and Eve, in their act of cosmic treason. That's what the apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 5, verse 19, when he declared, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So the gospel framework says that the origin of erotic same-sex behavior is fundamentally no different than the origin of other sin-driven character flaws, be they selfishness, narcissism, jealousy, envy, anger, rage, hate, murder, worry, anxiety, greed, materialism, addictions, or whatever. All of us have been infected by the fall and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our hearts and our bodies are riddled with the cancer of sin. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? See, this is why we need help. And this is why the gospel offers hope through Jesus. You see, Romans chapter 5, verse 19 says in its totality, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience 
That's Jesus, the second Adam. The many will be made righteous. In his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus Christ did for us what we could not do ourselves. The one who died but now lives proclaims all authority has been given to me. And church family, he who rises from the dead gets to have all authority. Therefore, honor God with your body, the king says. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. And so in Christ, we have been changed and we are being changed. You see, Jesus loves you as you are. And he loves you too much to have you stay that way. The gospel explanatory framework. That's what Paul meant when he said the word in Colossians 2, 8, Christ. But there's another framework at play in our world. There's an alternative to this framework. It's a, it's a competing perspective uh, that one researcher has called the gay explanatory framework. And it doesn't take very long to explain. In fact, it's very simple and it's very, very persuasive. And it sounds something like this. I've found myself with attractions or feelings or an orientation to those of the same sex. I've not made a conscious decision to feel this way. Therefore, I must have been born this way. Therefore, it must be biological. Therefore, homosexuality has something to do with genetics. Therefore, it can't be against God's will. The gay explanatory framework, there it is. It is a powerfully attractive philosophy. And it simply asserts, God made me this way. He wouldn't deny me my natural desires. And frankly, I don't have to explain myself to you or anybody else. The gay explanatory framework asserts that, that one's personal happiness is about embracing same-sex desires and urges. And that typically leads then to a, a coming-out ritual to, to publicly display one's new gay lifestyle and identity. Identity. The, the, the gay explanatory framework asserts that, that same-sex desires define one's identity. And so we hear the phrase, I am gay, I am lesbian, I am homosexual. And this self-identification is actually quite unique to our modern Western culture. Although homosexuality has existed for thousands of years, our modern Western culture is the very first culture in the history of the world in which the language of sexual identity has been employed. And the rhetoric is such that to question someone about their homosexuality is on par with questioning someone about the color of their skin 
And, and the passion behind this rhetoric and the force with which it's expressed is, is such to, to make us doubt ourselves and question our biblical convictions about how God wants us to express ourselves sexually. Church family, you simply can't grasp how hard it is to talk to someone today about homosexuality if you fail to see how the gay explanatory framework has permeated our culture. I mean, it's been, it's been promoted and it's being promoted uh, by influencers at the highest level in entertainment, in government, in education, and in media. And it's just assumed, isn't it? It's just assumed. Well, I have these desires. I didn't choose these desires. They're here. I must have been born this way. And, and since Jesus didn't say a word about homosexuality anyway, how can it be wrong? And well-meaning believers, you know, get caught flat-footed because we don't know how to respond. We don't know how to respond to someone who's entrenched in the gay explanatory framework. Well, how do we respond? Well, I'd like to take a few moments and I'd like to try to to respond to this particular framework. I'd like to, I'd like to, um, I'd like to deconstruct this framework with a few uh, questions. And let's start with desires. Where do these same-sex desires come from? What, what causes homosexuality? Is it genetic? Is it a preference? Is it environmental? Is it a choice? Often the debate is framed in either-or terms, nature or nurture, and, and both extremes seem to miss a combination of contributing factors. And um, let me just talk to you a little bit about the sources that I've used uh, for this message. Um, one source, uh, which I'll refer to later, and I want you to be aware of it now, is uh, a source that's out uh, on the table by the pillar. It's a book from... Uh, uh, someone in, from our church, Kent Paris, called Means of Grace, Means of Grace. And I recommend it, and it's, we've already purchased uh, 50 copies, and so um, suggested donation, $13 or free, okay? 13 or free, and, and I hope that you will take a copy for your library when you leave. Uh, uh, let me refer to another source because I know that some of you may be wondering, okay, when Randy says researchers say, well, everybody says that, write down uh, the acronym NARTH, N-A-R-T-H, N-A-R-T-H. That acronym stands for the National Association for Research and Therapy of Homosexuality. And uh, uh, there's a library of information on that website. Regarding the origins of homosexual behavior, I want to give you six contributing factors uh, that come from these sources. A combination of any or all of them can contribute to the homosexual lifestyle. The first being childhood sexual trauma. Childhood sexual trauma. In one study, the experience of sexual abuse as a child more than tripled the likelihood of someone who later reported homosexual orientation. Uh, in a surprising number of cases, homosexuals can look back to a time early on when they were sort of sexually confused, and when they were vulnerable, when they were living with doubt and fear, and when they weren't relating properly and appropriately to their parents. And then, Uncle Frank or Cousin Eddie 
or Phil from down the street stepped in and enlightened them to the thrills and chills of same-sex sexual expression. And friends, when a vulnerable boy or girl participates in a powerful sexual activity with a trusted friend or family member of the same sex, early on in life when there's confusion and alienation with their folks, the ramification and consequences are often very serious and long-lasting. Childhood sexual trauma, it's one factor in this equation. Another is just simply dysfunctional family systems. Dysfunctional family systems. Systems that leave a lack of appropriate same-sex intimacy, say, between a father and a son. There's no abuse, and yet at the same time, there's no affirming of what it means to be a man or woman of God. Dysfunctional family systems. A third factor is just plain old-fashioned peer pressure. Peer pressure to explore the, the exotic or forbidden. A fourth factor is personal preference. The Bible calls this the lust of the flesh. Pop singer Elton John once told the German magazine, Amica, I am gay and I wouldn't want to be heterosexual for all the money in the world. I've got enough money and I don't have to follow any rules and I don't have to be in the office from nine to five and take the kids to school in the morning. It's simply a fantastic life when you don't have any parameters. It's brilliant. Still another factor uh, may be this, what one calls a mysterious fascination with someone of the same sex. And then the sixth factor is, pay attention to this phrase, heritable biological tendencies. Heritable biological tendencies. The heritable biological tendency trait. We read this in the newspapers and we often think gay gene. And the thought is that if science can prove that there's a gay gene, then to call homosexuality immoral would be on par with declaring a race of people immoral simply for their race. Interestingly, one of the more recent biological theories deals with what happens in the womb. That perhaps during the baby's gestation period, there's a hormonal wash which may be contributing to the homosexual lifestyle or same-sex attraction, but there's been absolutely no conclusive data to prove or support this theory. And yet still, the gay gene theory is accepted as common knowledge now. And that's unfortunate because science has not produced evidence whereby a gene causes homosexuality in the same way that a gene causes one's race or one's eye color or one's hair color. One researcher does state that it is possible that some people have genetically grounded personality traits that predispose the person toward but do not cause homosexuality. Perhaps they have the types of temperaments that make it more difficult to fully identify uh, as a typical man or woman. Perhaps they crave the forbidden or exotic Perhaps they have the physical appearance that makes them attractive to same-sex partners. But please know, when you read in the papers the word heritable, that does not mean inherited. Associated with does not mean caused by. So there you have six factors, and one of them, three of them, four of them, or all of them in any mixture 
are a contributing factor to homosexuality. Erotic feelings acted out in a same-sex relationship. What I'm trying to tell you is that there's no set recipe for the homosexual life, which means that Christian parents who hear of a coming-out story by their adult child, they often beat themselves up. You know, what could we have done differently? And the fact of the matter is, Not all homosexuals were abused by their fathers and not all had passive fathers or smothering mothers and it is simply inaccurate to characterize these causes. The point I'm trying to make is that these factors, when you look at them, where do they fit better between these two frameworks? Clearly to me, they fit in the fallen, the fallen condition of the gospel explanatory framework. Well, how else would I respond in a way that would deconstruct this this gay explanatory framework? Well, I don't have to tell you that the entertainment world would have us believe that the typical homosexual relationship uh, tries to make us believe that it's just the same as the typical heterosexual relationship. We're constantly exposed to carefully scripted gay characters on TV and in the movies who appear clever and well-adjusted and smart and funny and wise, the purpose of which is to give the appearance that the homosexual life is normal. But it's anything but that. I mentioned Kent Paris's book, Means of Grace. Listen to what he says. According to the Journal of Sex Research, and that's a peer-reviewed journal, in a study of over 2,500 older homosexuals, only 2.7% claim to have sex with only one partner. The highest reported frequencies, and that's what researchers call the modal range, the highest reported frequencies were between 101 and 500 different partners. 10 to 15% self-disclosed that they'd had between 501 and 1,000 partners. And an additional 10 to 15% claimed to have engaged in sexual relationships with more than 1,000 partners. You cannot be intimate with 1,000 partners. Kent Paris says that few homosexual relationships last longer than two years and many men report hundreds of lifetime partners. This is not the gay life that is so idealized and dressed up for media consumption unless you're watching Will and Grace. Well, there's another deconstructing that I'd like to do and it involves Jesus See, I've heard the argument that Jesus has said nothing about homosexuality, that he doesn't even utter a word about homosexuality. Well, let's unpack that for just a minute, and let me do that by just asking one question. Are you saying that if Jesus doesn't explicitly condemn something, then that means he's condoning it? Really? Really? The gospel framework teaches that the entire Bible is the word of God. Not just the words that Christ himself spoke. Furthermore, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 5, Christ defines marriage as one man and one woman in a life union. And he quotes Genesis 2, 24, what I read earlier. Christ's teaching was that sexual expression 
must take place within that carefully guarded, God-ordained marriage relationship between a man and a woman. Church family, the gospel framework insists that biblical sexuality is based on truth outside ourselves. It comes from the resurrected Son of God. And our loyalty to Christ means that we must follow his authority. The gay framework teaches that truth regarding sexuality comes from within, comes from the heart. Could the heart be misled? C.S. Lewis once said, telling us to obey instinct is like telling us to obey people. People say different things, and so do instincts, and our instincts are at war. The fact is we're not robots. We're different from the animal world. We're moral agents who inherit tendencies from a fallen world, a fallen world of biology and environment, and we share in character formation by the way we respond to our choices. Yes, this is what I want to do, but is this what I should do? And there's a vast difference between impulse and expression. Isn't there? Isn't there? Isn't there a difference between an impulse to buy a birthday gift and then actually buying the birthday gift? Isn't there a difference between the impulse to to swear when cut off in traffic versus actually letting the words fly? Isn't there a difference between the impulse to commit adultery and then actually committing it? The impulse to consume alcohol versus actually taking a drink or the impulse to, to hit someone in anger versus actually doing it? See, do people have the capacity to control their behavior or not? Should they be expected to or not? Is sin in the body or is it in the soul? And which of our desires will we choose to define us? And here is a very important question if you struggle with homosexuality. Could it be that same-sex attraction is a unique struggle that calls forth a level of faith and perseverance that can actually build Christian character in the life of the believer who struggles with it? The gospel framework urges us to passionately pursue Christ, to treasure him first and most. The gospel framework says that anything I feel I must have to give me meaning other than Christ, well, that's an idol. And idolatry is what happens when I pursue someone or something smaller than Christ to give me what only Christ can give me. Well, I want to close our time with a few questions that uh, I know that some of you have had about this subject Uh, One question is this, Uh, what do I do if my teenager comes to me and says, mom and dad, I'm gay? Let me give you five rules. Rule number one, breathe. Okay, breathe, right? Rule number two, don't freak out, don't freak out. Often it's the fathers that do, you know? How does this make me look? And what, you know, no, it's not about you, Dad. Rule number three, pray. Rule number four, parents, get on the same page. Get on the same page. And rule number five, engage and get help. Engage and get help. 
Listen, if you say, well, I don't think I should be telling my kid what to do, you know what? You will be the only one saying that because everybody else is. Again, I really want you to pick up Kent Paris's means of grace. And uh, he, uh, Kent is local in our community. He runs a, a, a redemptive gospel centered ministry called Nehemiah Ministries, Rebuilding the Walls of Broken Lives. And uh, there are copies of an interview that Kent had with uh, a periodical that is uh, um, sent out to independent Christian churches across the country, uh, the Christian standard, and you're welcome to take uh, uh, those periodicals with you. Uh, We have 500 of them, and uh, Kent made those available to us. Another question uh, that some have asked of me is, you know, Randy, how can I love my homosexual adult child without aiding and abetting their behavior? How, how can I do that? And um, here's, uh, here's my counsel on that. Number one, affirm your love for them. Affirm your love for them. And it sounds like this. We will always love you. We will always love you. And we will never, ever, ever approve of your lifestyle, ever. And specifics may be, well, what about them coming uh, to our, your house? What about for dinner? What if my uh, homosexual adult child wants to bring their partner? Uh, would it be appropriate to have them into our house for dinner? Well, why wouldn't you? You know, in extending hospitality, isn't that being salt and light? Well, well what about them staying in your house and spending the night? As well... Personally, Sarah and I would treat a gay couple like any other relationship between an unmarried man and woman, and that means separate rooms at bedtime. And I don't really need to see PDA. Um, And uh, my house, my rules. Parents, what I'm trying to say is do not allow your gay adult child, do not allow your children, period, to manipulate you or shame you. Too often in scenarios that I've heard of, it's the parents that you know, attempt to give an itch and, and, and the adult child wants to take a mile. And if you allow your adult child to manipulate you, you're not helping. You're not. Still another question is, how do I maintain a friendship with someone who claims to be Christian but actively pursues a homosexual lifestyle? And I would follow the scriptures Counsel, which is this, treat them as an unbeliever. But by that, I don't mean that we refuse to be in their presence. See, it means that we live as salt and light in their presence, wooing them back to the God they've left. Still another has asked, must I cut off ties with a previous gay relationship? And The answer is yes, I believe so. And the reason why is once sexual boundaries have been crossed, it is very difficult to reset the relationship to simply a friendship. And that's true, be it homosexuality or or heterosexual sin. And then, this is a very common question, is it possible for a practicing homosexual to be a Christian? Is it possible for a practicing homosexual to be a Christian? And can we listen to the Apostle John as he answers this? 
In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, the Apostle John says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, so the Apostle John knows that in our journey with Christ, there are going to be times when we stumble and, and, and when we slip up. And so John says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. But then John differentiates that between habitual, intentional, blatant, rebellious behavior against God. He says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, and that's what we're talking about there, the habitual, blatant, rebellious sin against God as a lifestyle, as a continual lifestyle. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, he's a liar, and the truth is not in him. And then, and then John says, by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says that he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Why would God allow someone to have this tendency? I don't know. Why, why would God allow cancer? Why would he allow spina bifida, blindness? Why would God allow a single heterosexual who desires marriage to remain unmarried? I don't know. What I do know is that this world is broken. I know that God has acted in Jesus to redeem this world, and one day it will be restored. And I can't guarantee you that if you come to Jesus, that homosexual attractions will just instantly vanish any more than I can promise marriage to an unsatisfied single heterosexual. But I can say that if you come to Christ, you won't be alone. The gospel says that the people of God, the body of Christ, we are to be the spirit-filled, spirit-led community whereby we encourage one another and help one another and admonish one another and sharpen one another and teach one another and pray for one another and love one another just like we did earlier. The gospel framework says that the local church is a spiritual family. A safe place where brothers and sisters who struggle with any ungospel hurt, habit, or hang-up can come and grow and become more and more like Jesus. Jesus, who loves us as we are and who loves us too much to have us stay that way. Church family, please Paul says, let no one take you captive through a hollow and deceptive philosophy. And it's my conclusion that the gay explanatory framework is a hollow and deceptive philosophy. And it is human-centered. Let your lives be built on the rock of Christ. Would you bow your heads?